Well, good morning. Oh, gee. <laughs> you know, I am surprised this morning uh, when Ben asked me if I would substitute for him. He told me there was a men's retreat and that all of the men would be up at the men's retreat. And, uh, and I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I going to say to a room full of women? So I'm delighted to see you guys there. It's, this is encouraging. I, I appreciated that. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, uh, Carol and I have come to this church with our family since dirt was invented. And uh, actually, almost three decades ago now, I had the privilege of being part of the pastoral staff of this church. So uh, if I haven't met you, it's my fault. Unfortunately, the church has grown too fast for me to keep up. I'm shy by nature anyway, so <laughs> don't believe any of them. But, in fact, I don't know anybody in the second service, so anyway, uh, I'm glad to be here. You know, I know it's tough to listen to a guest speaker because of the talent that we've got and Ben and Chris and Caleb. Uh, you know, you kind of, oh, geez, we got a guest speaker today. But I hope that you enjoy this as much as I am, because for me, this is going to be fun. So uh, I, I hope you get into it, and uh, let's commit it to the Lord right now and see how this thing goes, okay? Father, we thank you so much for the privilege this morning that so many don't have across our globe to meet and discuss and think and talk openly about the things of God. We are so blessed, Lord. We commit this time to you. We thank you that you've given us the Spirit who indwells us, who leads us into all truth. And that's what we seek this morning, Father, is truth. And we commit this time to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and pray that all the honor and glory goes to him in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Speaking of almost three decades ago, I celebrated my 79th birthday eight days ago. Now, the Bible suggests that we live on the average basically three score and ten, which is roughly 70 years. So from my calculations, I've been living on borrowed time now for almost nine years. Now, I think by most standards, I have finally achieved the status of an old man. One of the funny things about... <laughs> and you have too, Dave. One of, <laughs> one of the funny things about growing old is your mind doesn't sense it as nearly as your body does. I mean, my doctor tells me that I'm in good shape for the shape I'm in. I have to keep reminding him that round is a shape. But I'm in relatively good shape. But if you were to ask my knees and my lung capacity, they would probably suggest otherwise. But is that not by God's design? Did not create us with a spirit and a soul that will last for all eternity? Yet... We've got a body that definitely has a shelf life. Now, we think, I think it's fair to say, in my case, that I have rounded the final corner in life and that I am headed straight down that straightaway to the finish line. Now, that kind of talk, I know, is uncomfortable for a lot of people, but it is a reality that we all face, barring the very soon coming of Jesus Christ. Now, candidly and honestly... I think I have enjoyed this stage of my life far more than any other. <clears throat> uh, and it is in this stage of life, however, I get more funeral invitations than I get birthday invitations. And sadly, I have lost some of my very dearest and best friends who thankfully have gone on to be with the Lord. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I want to address with you this morning a subject that is seldom dressed, addressed from the pulpit, and it's an event that we will all face as believers in Jesus Christ. And that event is the judgment seat of Christ. The Apostle Paul was very clear 
In 2 Corinthians 5.10, when he wrote and said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you will stand before that seat. But the question is, and what I want to think about today, is what is that judgment seat? And what is its purpose? Now, when we go to the movies, usually before the movie, there's a viewer warning, you know, such as warning, sexual content, nudity, foul language, violence, alcohol, smoking, whatever. Well, I've got a listener warning for today. So here it is. Listener warning. Raw truth, harsh reality, some speculation. So, viewer beware. I hope you will be like a Berean of Acts 17. Listen to what I have to say. Go home, look at the scriptures yourself, and see if this is really what you believe the scriptures say. So, now we jokingly talk about the fact that there's two inevitabilities in life, and they are? Thank you. Death and taxes. Well, the truth is, there's really three inevitabilities in life, and taxes, happily, are not one of them. The three inevitabilities in life are death, judgment, and recompense. And in the context of the judgment seat of Christ, I want to briefly talk about each of those issues. Now, I am confident that when I'm done this morning, most of you are probably going to walk out of here with more answers than questions, more questions than answers, I should say. And I want you to know that I have prepared thoroughly for that event. If you have any questions when I'm done this morning, I have personally obtained Ben Orchard's private cell number, <laughs> and I will gladly give it to you, and you are welcome to call him and get all your difficulties resolved. Honestly, though, I hope my goal is that you will be genuinely encouraged about the certain inevitable events that await you once you step off this planet. Dread, terror, fear, anxiety have absolutely no place in God's economy. I want to convince you that that is true about your death, that's true about the judgment you are face, and that's true about the recompense that awaits you. Let's begin with death, okay? And again, this is going to be fun. I think you're going to like this, I hope. The Hebrew writer was very clear when he wrote and said, Inasmuch as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. We die once. There's no do-overs. There's no reincarnation. Once you die, the next event on the calendar is the judgment. Okay? But first things first, death. Now, I realize that many people and many books have been written about people who have technically, clinically, and medically died. In fact, I believe the world record holder for that uh, just occurred recently in 2019, a lady 34 years old in Spain who died for six hours, stopped breathing, no heartbeat, clinically dead, six hours, and she was brought back to life. But that is not the biblical definition of what death is. Death is the event, biblically, where your soul and your spirit leave your body permanently. And permanently is the key idea there. When you step through death's door, I want you to notice something. As you walk through that door and it closes behind you, I want you to turn around and look and you'll notice there's no, no doorknob on the inside. Once you die, you are in eternity. Now, I was always under the impression, as I grew up in a church, that when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, that Jesus paid the penalty for all my sin, that he paid the, the, the wages of sin as death, right? 
That's the penalty of sin, death, that Jesus paid the penalty of death. And so I always used to wonder, why was it I have to die? I mean, it sounds like double jeopardy, does it not? Well, my goodness. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of that, but my guess is as soon as you get to be 79, it'll probably cross your mind once or twice. There is an answer to that question, though, about double jeopardy. And the answer is this, and it's very simple. Dying for the believer is a radically, radically different event and experience than it is for the unbeliever. And we get a hint of that throughout the entire New Testament. Every place in the New Testament where a writer talks about the death of a believer He couches it in the terms of having fallen asleep in Christ. Now, unfortunately, many Christians have picked up that term and have come up with this idea of soul sleep. Now, I'm not going to go off off the rails and talk about soul sleep. If you want to do that, again, I've got Ben's cell number. You can talk to him about it. But I just want to say this. The Apostle Paul goes to great extent in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to completely debunk the idea of soul sleep. From the Apostle Paul's point of view, we are either absent from the body and present with the Lord, or absent from the Lord and present in the body. He calls this body in that passage a tent. And the reason he calls it a tent is because a tent is a temporary structure and our lives on this planet are a temporary existence. But once we shed this body, according to the Apostle Paul in that chapter, we are given what he calls a building from God. That's a term he uses for our resurrected body. Why a building from God? Made without hands because that building is designed to last for all eternity. Paul says a couple of times there that we are never unclothed. That's his comment about soul sleep. Unclothed, being a soul and a spirit somewhere wandering around in the netherworld without a body. Paul has nothing to do with this. If you could pull up slide number one at this point, I'd appreciate it. I'd like to show you what the radical difference is between the death of a believer and an unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 54, the apostle writes this, But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, let me stop right now. You see what the options there are? Perishable or imperishable? Mortal and immortality. There's no squeezy 2,000 years float in space thing going on. It's one or the other. He says, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Oh, death, where is your, your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's the difference. When the believer dies, there is no vic- death has no victory. Death has no sting. Those two things are taken completely off the table. And that is a game-changing difference. So... What is the victory of death? Well, to put it quite simply and not to belabor the point, the victory of death is being sentenced for all eternity in a hell that's described as outer darkness burning where there'll be gnashing of teeth for all eternity. According to Revelations 20, when the unbeliever approaches death's door, and walks through death's door, he will stand before, Revelations 20:11, the great white throne judgment of God. And there, he will be judged for rejecting the free gift of salvation that cost the Father the life of his only Son. And he will pay for his own sins for all eternity in a hell that he'll never get out of. 
That for the believer is totally off the table. What's the promise that the believer has when he steps through death's door? Jesus says, those who have trusted me, believed in me, accepted my substitutionary death for payment for their, your sins, you are given eternal life with Christ Jesus our Lord for all eternity. When you step through death's door, you're going to step right into the arms of your Lord who loves you more than you will ever imagine. Secondly, the radical difference is the sting of death is gone. What is the sting of death? Well, Paul says here in this pasture in verse 56 that the sting of the death is sin. Now, sin always has consequence in the human psyche. We see this clearly with the very first couple, Adam and Eve. It was Adam's custom to walk with the Lord, to walk with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine that? Walking with God, talking about things. What an intimate relationship he had with his Father in heaven. Yet what happened after he sinned? He hid from God. Why did he hide from God? The text says because he feared him. For the first time in Adam's entire existence, he felt fear. One of the many incipient forms of sin that we experienced in life. And there are many others. Fear, anxiety, dread, guilt, shame, hopelessness, helplessness, confusion, terror, trembling, dread, nervousness, revulsion, on and on and on, have no place in God's economy. Yet when the unbeliever steps through death's door, or steps into death's door, he is filled with horror and fear, and rightfully so. Because the writer of the Hebrews tells us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you know what you're going to experience when you walk through that door? There's hardly English words to describe what's in my head, but when you walk through that door, there's going to be such a sense of, I'm home, I've made it, finally I'm here, the race is over, it's finished, this is where I've been created to be all my life. I believe when you get there, there's going to be such a sense of fulfillment and completeness. And that's why in this passage behind me, Paul says twice that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where God gives us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Death for you as a believer is going to be a celebrative, joyous event. And you can take that one to the bank. So, let's turn our attention to the judgment. Okay, again, the Hebrew writer says, wants to die, and then the judgment. As believers, we're going to step into the presence of God, and immediately he's going to usher us before the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to swallow hard, right? I enjoy leading a men's Bible study at the Stupid Cow every Thursday morning from 6.30 to 7.30. And uh, several months ago, we studied through this passage in 2 Corinthians. And it's a great group of guys uh, that represent five different churches. And when we got to this, I asked the guys, uh, before we got into the context of it, I said, so guys, what do you think? What do you think about the inevitability that you are going to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Now, I think I can honestly say that there wasn't a man sitting in the room that wasn't exactly excited and happy about that event. In fact, the first question that came to me was, is it public or private? Now, that reveals a lot right there. The sad reality is, according to the context of the passages we're going to look at next, This is a very public event. Now, uh, it 
so let, let's let's think about this for a second. This judgment seat. Pull up the second slide if, if you would. Now's a good time to do that. Here in First Corinthians, there's two passages that are sitting here side by side. Both of these texts address the same event, the judgment seat of Christ. In First uh, Corinthians four five, the apostle writes. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. In other words, quit judging each other. You can't tell what the intent and motive of anybody's heart is. Stop it. He says, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to the light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, Paul adds to that in the second letter of Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 10, for he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body according to what he has done, either good or bad. Okay? First question. When will the judgment seat of Christ? Well, Paul answers that in the first Corinthians passage. It'll come... When the Lord comes. Now, he's not talking there about the second coming of Christ. He's talking about the coming when the Lord comes for the church at the rapture. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be between the rapture of the church and the second coming. The second question is, who's going to be before standing there appearing? Well, Paul answers that in the second passage in 2 Corinthians. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the all there is a reference to all believers. We already know from Revelations 20.11 that the unbelievers stand before the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is reserved for believers only. There will only be believers there. The third question is, what is the purpose Well, both texts give us the purpose. In the first Corinthians passage, it's so the Lord can bring to the light of day those things that you have buried and hidden in the darkness. And to expose the intentions and motivations of your heart. Now, the Apostle Paul adds to that in the second Corinthians passage by adding that we will be judged according to the things that we've done in this body. In other words, from the day we accepted Christ to the day we stand before the judgment seat, and that judgment will be done in terms of whether the things we have done are good or bad. So up onto the table are going to be two piles. The things that we have done that are good, The things that we have done are bad. Now, wait a minute, you say. Hold the phone just a second. I thought that when I trusted Christ as my Savior, that all my sins were forgiven, past, present, and future. I thought John tells me in 1 John 1, 9, that he not only forgives me, but he cleanses me from some unrighteousness. A little bit of unrighteousness, part unrighteousness, two-thirds. No, he forgives me of all unrighteousness. And does not the Old Testament text tell us that he separated our sins as far as the east is from the west? Just hold up with this two-pile stuff. Well, you're right about all that. But there's more than one kind of a judgment. In fact, notice these two verses carefully. Here's what I mean. What is the outcome of standing before the judgment seat of Christ? Look at those passages. In the first Corinthians passage, once the things we've done in darkness are brought to the light and the intensive motives of our hearts are out into the open so everybody can see them, everybody, including the Lord and us, what does the first Corinthians 4, 5 passage tell us the outcome? Well, it says that then we will receive praise from. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? Can you? I can't imagine that God would praise me for anything. 
But that's what that text says. The result will be praise from God our Father. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. What does the 2 Corinthians passage say is the outcome? Things are going to be judged, whether good or bad, the deeds we did in flesh. What's the result in the 2 Corinthians passage? Rewards. No place in either passage or in anywhere in the New Testament as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ is there punishment, retribution, or condemnation. And rightly so, because the Apostle Paul has told us unequivocally in Romans 1.8 that there is therefore now... No! Not some, not a little, not partial, not maybe here and maybe there, maybe not. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now. No condemnation at the judgment seat. No condemnation in all eternity. And that's because what's going on at the judgment seat of Christ is not a sin issue. It's a good and worthless issue. Now, unfortunately... Some of your Bibles interpret that phrase good and bad. They interpret it good and evil. If you have a Bible or an app that has it interpreted good and evil, if you've got a Bible, take a black ink pen and just cross that, just color it all out so you can't even see the word evil. If you've got an app, delete the app. Get a new app. Okay, Because the word there in the original language is not the word for evil. It's the word for useless, worthless, of no value. You see, when we stand before that judgment seat, that's what's going to determine what's in each pile. What we've done is that is of value and honor and brings, brings glory to Christ. And those things that we have done that have no value are absolutely worthless and useless and bring no honor to Christ. Now we know, we've been told in the Scripture, what determines the two. Again, the Hebrew writer tells us, without faith it is impossible to please God. You do not have the capability in your flesh I don't care how smart you are, how trained you are, how brilliant you are, how rich you are, how much power you have, whether you're a politician, whether whatever. There's nothing you can do in the flesh that's going to please God as hard as you may try. I don't care how much money you give. It ain't pleasing God. The only thing that pleases God is what is done by faith. We either walk by faith or we walk by sight. We either walk by faith or we walk in the flesh. You don't combine those two. I hate this concept that I do my part and God does the rest. Good grief. Or it's me and God as a team working together, arm in arm, hand in hand. As though I have anything to offer to the equation. The Apostle Paul is very clear just a few chapters back from this uh, a uh, chapter that's up on the screen, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider some things, a few things, good things, bad things, not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. There's nothing we can do in the flesh. Me and God working together, the only thing I can add to God's equation is junk. But the writer goes on to say, but our adequacy, see we can be adequate, our adequacy comes from God who makes us adequate as servants of the new covenant. When you are trusting in Him, when you're relying upon His resources, when you're depending upon Him to use you for His purposes, that goes in the good pile. When you do stuff in an attempt in your flesh, 
that you think's good and God's going to like this, that goes in the junk pile. Now, let's get to the point of this judgment thing, because I think this is amazing. And again, be a, a Berean Acts 17 believer. I think there are two extremely important and valuable reasons why we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The first one is this. When all that junk inside, all the things that we have pushed and pushed and buried and cramped down in our soul, in our heart, all that stuff that is hidden in darkness that we don't want anyone to look at, when all of that is brought up to the light of day and put on the table on display for everyone to see, and when the motives and intents of every action we've done as a Christian are brought up and put up on the table, it's going to be a mind-boggling revelation. You will see yourself for the first time in your existence exactly like God sees you. And everyone else is going to see you exactly like God sees you. Now, I think that's going to be a heartbreaking situation for all of us. Because I'm telling you, the one thing that keeps us from deep and intimate relationships, from marriage on down, in every relationship we have, is that we've got stuff that are, we have buried in our gut, in our soul, that we don't want anybody to know about it. Because if they did, they would think less of us. They might not like us. And all of that, I want to say crap, but that's not a Christian good thing to say. All of that stuff we have buried hinders intimacy of relationship. Well, you know what? Once that stuff comes out, you're no longer going to be a dirty coffee pot that you can't even see to the bottom of. You're going to be a crystal clear Waterford, Waterford glass jar. See right through it. There's going to be such a relief of having that stuff gone because now you can be who you are without pretense. But again, I say that's going to be heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. Because you know what's going to happen? God's going to reveal that there's a lot of things that we have done that we didn't even know we were doing that brought honor to Him, and that's going to go in the good stack. But there's going to be a whole lot of things that we've done that we thought we were honoring Him, but really... We were just pleasing our own ego, our need to look good, our need to be accepted. But we thought we were honoring God, and we weren't even aware of the, of the rotten motive that was coming out of it. That, I believe, is going to bring tears. It's going to bring heartache. It's going to bring a great amount of sorrow and even shame. And I believe it's at that point in that revelation, as we are cleaned out, that, that what Paul writes in Revelation 21.4 comes true where it says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things, the things that we did in this life that we've crammed, the first things, they have passed away. That is going to be the breaking blow of our ego. It's our ego that blinds us. And that is where our ego is going to be crushed and gone completely. And we are going to be set free to be ourselves and to be loved by Him and by the company of believers around us who are going to all experience the same thing. That's the first result. And it's going to be marvelous. It's going to be fun. And the second result is this. Once that nonsense is pulled out of us, for the very first time, we are going to see the depths, the incomprehensible magnitude of the grace of God. I don't believe any of us have any idea of what the grace of God is really all about. We say Christ died for your sins. 
And it rolls off our lips almost like a cliche. Five simple words. Most of us, the depth of our understanding grace is that it's an acrostic. God's resources at Christ's expense. Now, I don't want to belittle the acrostic because it's helpful. But once we can see ourselves as God sees us, once the nonsense is gone, you know what we're going to understand for the very first time in our existence? What it actually costs the Father. The life of His only Son shed who was innocent. And it's going to grab us in a way like we've never known before. That is the moment when, according to the 1 Corinthians 4 passage behind me, is when God will praise us. And with that praise, according to the 2 Corinthians passage, will come our rewards. So, in closing, what are these rewards? Slide three, if you could, please. Here in this passage in 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, 15 through 17, Well, let me start here. Let me begin with this. The most common explanation in Christendom today for what the rewards are is that we will receive crowns, and when we get to glory, we'll cast our crowns at Jesus' feet. Now, that idea comes from one single verse in all the Old and New Testament. And it's a verse in Revelation 4 where John writes about the 20... the 24 elders who sit on 24 thrones around the throne of God. And those 24 elders are wearing golden crowns and they take them off and toss them at Jesus' feet. Now there's a whole lot of debate about that passage. Who are those 24 elders? What do they represent? Are they redeemed men or are they angelic beings? And what's the purpose of throwing them at Jesus' feet? I mean, there's a lot of discussion about it. I think there's a much better explanation for the rewards that we'll receive in glory that I believe has much better biblical support than one verse. Now again, this is where the viewer warning comes in. This could be speculation. So listen carefully and figure it out for yourself. But this is what I suggest. In this passage in 2 Corinthians, we read, But thanks be to God. No, we don't read that. We read this. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, amen, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, because the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Now here, the apostle is telling us that all the heartache, all the struggle, all the difficulties and trauma that we face in these 70 plus years on earth is absolutely nothing in comparison to that eternal weight of glory that is ours for all eternity. So the question is, what is this eternal weight of glory? Well, it's a mystery, but not without some clues. The word weight here is used in 1 Thessalonians 2.6. Acts 15.28, Revelation 2.24, Matthew 12.20, as a weight of responsibility or a weight of authority. In fact, the word is used a couple of different times as a burden. Again, as a burden of responsibility. Now, it seems to me that what the Apostle is saying is that when we get to glory, there will be a burden of responsibility, a weight of responsibility, weighting us, that is designed to bring glory to the Father for all eternity. Now to me, that seems consistent with the very purpose for why God created us. Why did God create you? Why are you even here? Remember, he's the potter, you're a clay. He made you into a vessel. Why? Because he wants to contain you 
He wants you to contain Him. He wants to live in you. Why does He want to live in you? So He can use you for whose purpose? Yours? No. For His. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher that lived in the century, uh, 16th century, hit the nail on the head when he said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Blaze. You hit the nail on the head. You look around you in society, and you look at the garbage men are cramming into that God-shaped vacuum. Success, money, boats, houses, power, authority, political influence, whatever. There is no purpose or meaning in life without Him filling you and using you for His purposes. How do you bring glory to God? Many Christians would say, through the fruit of your lips. Yes, that's a great way. But that's not the primary way. The primary way you bring glory to God is allowing Him to fill you and live His life through you for His glory, not for yours. And I believe that's going to go on throughout all eternity. So how does God use us in eternity? There's a good question. That's a mystery, but there are some clues. One of the clues is there are several passages in the New Testament that tell us that we will reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. Can you imagine that? When he comes again, we're going to come with him. We'll be caught up in the rapture. We'll re- return with Christ and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. Paul adds to that to the Ephesians when he says, and we'll be seated with him in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, the place of authority. It seems that that reign, and reign seemed like a weight of responsibility, is going to go on into eternity. But reign how? Bring up slide four. How are we going to reign? I uh, couldn't get those side by side, could you? Are those side? No, those are not side by side. That's just the mathy one. Okay, uh, we'll just deal with this. I'll, I'll have you flip <laughs> when we need to flip. Uh, reign how? Again, there's some good clues. And I think two of the best clues in the Scriptures of how we are to reign are given to us in the two parables that Jesus gives in the New Testament. First is the parable of the... uh, Mine is in Luke 19. Talents. The parable of the talents in Luke 25. Okay? The parable of talents. Now, both these parables speak... Uh, are, are very similar in nature with a very few differences between the two. In both parables, the master leaves for a long journey, a long uh, time, but will return. In both parables, before the master leaves, he gives his servants gifts. The gifts are in forms of money, talents, or a, a, a quantity of money in Matthew 25, and in Luke 19, minas. Or, or a quantity of money as well. But he gives these gifts and he expects his servants to invest those gifts that he has given him because when he comes back, there's going to be accountability for what they've done with their gifts, right? So, in Matthew 25, he gives one guy five talents, another guy two talents, and a third guy one talent. Now, what I like about this 25, Matthew 25 passage on, on the wall is the text tells us that he gives them these talents according to their ability. He doesn't frustrate or exasperate the guy that can only have handle two talents by giving him five, and he doesn't confuse and underwhelm the guy that can handle five talents and only give him two. Everybody gets exactly what they're equipped to handle. The one-talent guy, praise God, he gets one talent. He can only handle one talent. Okay? Now in Luke, everybody gets a mina. They all get ten minas. They all get the same. But in each of the passages, when the Master returns, 
he is going to judge them. Flip back now to the 25. Or, yeah, Matthew 20. Thank you. Okay, and Matthew. When the, sir, the master returns, one guy earned five. Another guy earned two. The guy that had two earns two. The guy that had one simply buried in the dirt, did nothing with it. So, the master comes to the guy that had five and got five more, and this is what he says to him. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. That, to me, sounds like a weight of responsibility. To the guy that had two and made two, he says, I exactly the same thing. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Sounds like a weight of responsibility to me. Now, the guy that just did nothing, buried his one talent, he is called a wicked and evil slave, and he is to be, quote, cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a biblical idiom for hell. Now, switch to the Luke. In Luke 19, everybody gets ten. One guy with ten minas gets ten more, invests and gets ten more. A second guy with ten only gets five more. The third guy with ten wraps it in a hanky, stuffs it in a drawer somewhere, does nothing with it. Well, when the master returns, he says to the guy that invested his ten and got ten more, he says, well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in very little thing, be in authority over ten cities. Whoa, that really sounds like a weight of responsibility. The guy that had five and had ten and only made five, he says the same thing to him, but he says to him, and you are to be over five cities. Again, a weight of responsibility. Again, commensurate with his ability. Now to the guy that had one, he declares him to be his enemy and that he is to be slain before him. Okay. Put in charge of many things. Authority over ten cities? Authority over five cities? What does that mean? Honestly, I don't know. And I'm out of clues. But I do know this. We will reign with Christ through the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. I would assume that the rewards we will give be given in heaven will be the ability and the gifts to bring glory to God as we allow him to continue to use us as his servants throughout all eternity in a mind-blowing experience. Now here's my whole point about the judgment seat of Christ. The master has gone on a long journey. He is going to return And to every one of you who know Christ as your Savior and Lord, He has given you gifts. He's given you a gift of faith. He's given you spiritual gifts. He's given you blessings. And He expects every one of us to invest the gifts that He has given us. Because when He comes back, there is going to be an evaluation to determine what we've done with these gifts. I hope as we face these three inevitabilities, death, judgment, and rewards, that you are encouraged by the fact that your death is going to be a celebrative, glorious victory. The fear is gone. Eternity and hell is gone. It's going to be a marvelous event as you step into the Lord's presence. I hope you're encouraged by our loving Lord, who will at the judgment seat finally set you free of all the wood, hay, and stubble that has buried you all your life. As he brings that up and sweeps that away, and that now you're able to live your life completely without pretense, That's what's going to make intimacy with the Lord possible and with one another. 
and that you'll understand for the first time the depths of God's love like you've never imagined before. I'm telling you, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a glorious event. And I hope you're encouraged by the fact that the Father is going to praise you at that point. I mean, I believe there aren't words to describe what that means. He's going to praise you and gift you to be used by Him throughout all eternity to bring honor and glory and praise to His name. What incredible hope lies before us. That is your destiny in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that what lies before us as believers is just a gracious, glorious victory, unimaginable uh, grace that you are going to fill us with. God, would you please help us to understand how much you've given us. And we are so grateful for it. And Lord, as we now come to the Lord's table, we thank you that all of this was set in motion and set in place because your son was willing to become a man, to die, to raise again, and to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we want to recall the very basis, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that makes this all possible. And we are so grateful for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. We are going to have communion now, so if you would take your cup and prepare it. And once you get it open and you get that wafer out and get your cup open, would you spend just about 30 seconds to a minute in prayer privately and just thank God for what he did that makes possible the future that is ours in Christ. So open it up and just silently pray. Again, Lord, we thank you for these elements that are nothing more than a reminder of what you did that made our future possible. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name.